I mean, I don't know that that's the right way for everybody, but look, there's no better way to prove yourself than to do something that nobody thinks that you could do. You know, I mean, I, there were there was another property that I was working on just before that one that was about the same size. It was also 32 acres. It was also high density zoning, about the same price point. And that seller just did not like, you know, we worked on it for probably six months. He just did not have faith that I'd be able to close. And so that made me so mad. I was like, fine, I'm going to go find another property that's very similar to this around the corner and prove to you. And that's exactly what I did. But Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, I get the absolute pleasure to interview Tyler Cobble, a best-selling Amazon author, triple net leasing, property management. I mean, it is unbelievable the number of things that you've accomplished. So I am crazy excited to be able to dive into all these different facets. But if you will, as always, take us into what's the craziest real estate experience you've had so far in your career? Yeah, Matt, thanks for having me on. So this uh, this one actually goes back to the pandemic, uh, you know, April, kind of that, yeah, I guess it was March, April, you know, on the brokerage side, every transaction stopped. I mean, everybody was just trying to figure out what was going on. And I was trying to occupy myself. So I started looking at, at doing some bigger deals or seeing what deals had fallen through that might you know, be an opportunity and came across this deal that was no longer on the market. It was a 330,000 square foot shopping center on 32 acres. And uh, they had been asking 35 million for it. And I was looking at it. And I was like, it's just not worth that at all. Looked at the owners. And it turns out I had got, I had played football uh, with, with the son of one of the owners. So I called him and I said, guys, what would you realistically take for this? And they said it, you know, cause I know you, I know you guys know it's not worth what you were asking. And they said, uh, probably about 20, 21 million. And so I sent them an offer of 17. We ended up negotiating for 18 million to purchase this property. Uh, this was before I, I had never done a deal of this size and scale before. So I had no idea how I was going to pull it off. Um, they wanted 1% earnest money, which is $180,000, which I did not have. So I called one of my investors and had them put that up. And we spent about six months going through 34 leases, trying to figure out what was going on because they had signed most of those 10, 15, 20 plus years ago. They were missing documents. They were scanned upside down. It was a total mess. And there were multiple times throughout that process where, uh, you know, it literally came within an hour of me losing uh, $180,000 plus all the legal fees, plus all the due diligence costs that I didn't have. I didn't have the money for. And uh, it was December 31st, New Year's Eve, about 10 o'clock that night. I finally ended up signing on a capital partner onto that project. And we closed it in April. Uh, by far the biggest takedown that we've ever done. And, uh, you know, I look back on that and it was such an adrenaline rush, but I don't ever want to put myself through that again. <laughs> it was such a wild deal, but yeah, it was a great one. I'm glad you said that. I interviewed Tarek El Moussa and he had a similar, like throw himself into a moment. And he said the juice was worth the squeeze. So I'm glad you, you've been transparent with us. Let's get deep into this deal because this really, I think gets at the fears of a lot of investors that are too scared to go bigger. So Talk, talk us through like, what did you feel the actual value of that property was when you bought it? Like, and what led you to make the decision to go for it? Yeah. I mean, I thought the actual value of that property was about what they were asking for it. The problem was with where the pandemic was and a couple of other uh, issues with the site, it was going to take the right kind of buyer. You know, it, it wasn't just one of these class A primo assets where, 
there are hundreds of potential investors out there that could take this down. I knew that we were a good fit for it because we're very creative. We think outside of the box. And so uh, we actually ended up proving that it was worth significantly more um, after we bought it because we're just master planning it. And uh, we went under contract on the first phase, which is only a portion of that project for uh, almost what we paid for the entire site. So it was, uh, to me, a no-brainer. I mean, I looked at the price per square foot on the dirt, and I just knew that it was an absolute deal, and, and we had to figure it out. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a good one for sure. It's It's been fun working on it. But, yeah, I, I think thinking bigger is always a good thing to do. You know, before that, most of my deals had been in that three to five million dollar range. And, you know, we had syndicated well over 18 million dollars at that time, but I had never taken down a single asset of that size. And it is a totally different beast. It's a totally different beast for sure. So what what's running through you? I mean, give us like is there feelings? Like are you are you like is your hand sweating? Like what's going through your body? How are you talking yourself through this thing? Yeah. So when I get into situations like that, you know, the, just my personality, how I've always acted is the only way out is through, you got to figure it out. Right. And I know that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so for me it was, well, here's a good chance to prove that you can do this. And so that was really the only thing that was going through my head was we're going to find a way. It's just another phone call away. It's another email away. Um, and so, I mean, I, I was just pounding the phones, doing everything I could to work out deals, talking to my attorneys, talking to the lenders, talking to, you know, uh, potential private equity partners. I mean, it was it was a lot, a lot, a lot of walking back and forth outside, pacing on the phone, trying to get something figured out. But that's that's pretty much all it takes. You know, it's you, you got to sit down and really put your mind to it that the only option is to get this deal done and never think about what happens if it doesn't. Yeah. And did it get weird at all? I mean, you're calling up a friend, someone that you knew negotiating a deal. Like, I mean, it's a lot of money. People can get really squirrely when you're talking about lots of money. No, oh, absolutely. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't awkward at all. He, he, I think he actually preferred to sell it to a friend uh, because, you know, they had owned this property for 30 years and it, and it made a lot of sense for them to, and they had gotten it to a point where like they rezoned it. It was teed up for the next guy, but he knew that, you know, he and his partner or his dad's former partner, uh, was, were not the best ones to be doing it. You know, they were more of the the long-term buy and hold kind of group. And so he ended up, my relationship with him ended up being the only reason that we got it across the finish line because there were so many points throughout that deal where the partner wanted to kill the deal. And it was over the craziest things. But because I had a relationship with one of the sellers and he had a relationship with his partner, he was able to work that out with them in order to get us across the finish line. So it was the best uh, best possible scenario, really. So this actually leads me to the thought that I think a lot about is that like commercial, a lot of times might be a different skill set than say like a residential investor. And even in this case, the skill sets in the, in the orientation that, that your friends had was different than like yours, which is I'm gonna keep bowling this on. What skill sets did you have that allowed you or mindsets that allowed you to be the right person to take this on? For sure. So, you know, I knew that uh, in, in Nashville, uh, it's, it's what some people would call on the wrong side of the river, um, which to me is the right side of the river. You know, I started investing in East Nashville and that area years ago because I didn't have to compete with the bigger guys. You know, they were all focused on the south side of town. And I was looking at this going, man, we're 10 minutes from downtown Nashville on a major corridor. And it's valued at probably 
a seventh to a tenth of what it would be on the opposite side of town. So, I mean, to me, there's a, a lot of value there, especially as Nashville continues to grow. Uh, you know, we we have very strong relationships with our community because we are we live in the communities within which we invest, and we have a successful track record of projects that deliver something valuable to the community, which I think is very big for commercial real estate development. And uh, so because of that, you know, we had the neighborhood on our side. I had the sellers on our side. Uh, it was just a matter of finding the right way to make the puzzle pieces fit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, going back to my background, I've never had, I've never had issues taking risk, you know, to me, like it's just money, you know, which I know is kind of a funny thing to say, but like, you know, look, I didn't have probably more than 30, 40 grand in my bank account at that time. And if I'd lost a hundred thousand dollars, man, or really 200,000, you know, man, that would have really hurt, but I'll make that back. You know, I always, always tell people like, look, it's not like we're being sent off to war. Nobody's shooting at us. We're going to get this figured out. Everything's going to be fine. So just push forward. And so I, I just don't um, stress out in situations like that, which I think really helps me figure out how to, to make it work. Um, and then, and then just honestly having the initiative, right? Picking up the phone and calling an off market deal and finding a way to make it work, you know? Yeah. So you close this deal. Take us into, I mean, it's a shopping mall. Is it mostly vacant? Is it just have bad leases that you have to get renegotiated? Like, give us a scope of, like, how did you vision this building? How did you plan? Yeah, so it's actually fully occupied. And we've got some leases running through 2034. So we've got to work around those, but it sits on 32 acres. And so we're kind of phasing each side of the development around those leases, uh, which is great, right? It's, it's basically a covered land play which is a completely underrated way of investing. We bought 32 acres that was high density zoned that was cash flowing, right? So, you know, we're just working around the cash flow to make the development pieces work. Um, so pretty, pretty great way to do it because the cash flow covers our debt service. And that gives us enough time to come in, plan the development, go through that due diligence process, the design and sale process and make it work. So walk me into what you mean by that a little bit more. So when you talk about development, are you talking about making the building newer, building more buildings? Yeah, so we're actually building more buildings. The The site is uh, it's zoned for upwards of 4.5 million square feet. Uh, and right now it's only 330,000. So we won't do nearly that high of density. We're going back with closer to 1.5 million square feet. We're going to have a little over 1,000 apartments couple hundred thousand square feet of office space and, and some ground floor retail. Uh, but it will, it, it, this is basically the downtown center of that side of town. And so we're going to turn it into a true downtown center. I mean, going from 330,000 square feet to 1.5 million is no joke. Like, and when you say that the property is cash flowing the development, like, are you talking about just the engineering and the, the planning? Or are you talking about like, it will bankroll the building of the building as well? Yeah, so we're, we're doing what's called master developing the, the site. So we're not actually building out the individual phases ourselves. We're putting together, it's like if we were planning a neighborhood, right? And we lay out how the neighborhood's going to be. We go out there and develop the land and then we sell off lots to builders. That's essentially what we're doing for this big commercial piece, right? So we've master planned the entire site. We've selected which pieces are going to go where. And then from that point, you know, we've worked with the government to be able to pull some some funding together for it. Um, and then from that point, we go out and source the right developer for each phase. 
but the the tenants that are currently there are cash flowing the debt service to own the property. So we don't actually have any true carrying costs uh, that we need to worry about. This is incredible. And so essentially, like you mentioned with residential, it's like selling the paper lots. And you mentioned earlier that that one phase of this development is going to sell for the cost of the entire development. Pretty much. Yeah, we're getting pretty close to that. Uh, you know, it was pretty wild. Um, but we knew we knew that if we were the ones to, that if we got it and we broke it up, that we'd be able to get a much higher price. Right. That's that's the beauty of going bigger. Because that person that wants six acres to build a, you know, four to 500 apartment units, they're not going to buy 32 acres, right? So they need somebody else that is willing to come in, buy all of that land, take the upfront risk, and then make it easier on them. And they're willing to pay you for that, right? And so that's, that's what we're experiencing now. So you mentioned, like, I mean, this is like a home run of home runs, it sounds like. And you're mentioning you wouldn't do it again. Like what, what kind of lends you to that scenario? Yeah. I don't know if I, if I would say with 100% certainty that I wouldn't do it again, I just wouldn't want to go through that, that process the same way again. Um, you know, now, I mean, it's been several years, so I, I'm far more experienced. Um, I have better access to capital, better access to lending partners. And, uh, I just know that side of things better. So, Next time we take down a project like that, I mean, we're kind of doing something similar right now. I'm under contract on on a 78-unit hotel that we're going to convert into a, a mid-luxury boutique hotel. I mean, that's a pretty big undertaking. It's a you know close to three acres right outside of downtown Nashville, so that's a very big project. But I approached that in a very different way where I went out and found my capital partner first and then went and found the deal. And so, you know, the problem is when you're first starting out, you may not have those opportunities. Those capital partners have now reached out to me because they've seen me pull off a project of that scale. So I kind of have them in my back pocket and I know what their buy box is. So then I can go out and find projects to do that kind of check those boxes. But, you know, when you're first getting started, you just don't have those contacts. Um, but, you know, there's no better way to find those contacts than to be under the gun and have a whole <laughs> lot of money on the line. <laughs> All right. So let me make sure I got this right. You wouldn't put yourself in that same situation again, but if you were advising yourself, having never done one, or maybe advising a new person, you would say, put yourself under the gun so that you could build the credibility with investors, get them on, do it once, then wash your hands of it and do it much, much easier the times that follow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's the right way for everybody, but look, there's no better way to prove yourself than to do something that nobody thinks that you could do. You know, I mean, I, there were there was another property that I was working on just before that one that was about the same size. It was also 32 acres. It was also high density zoning, about the same price point. And that seller just did not like, you know, we worked on it for probably six months. He just did not have faith that I'd be able to close. And so that made me so mad. I was like, fine, I'm going to go find another property that's very similar to this around the corner and prove to you. And that's exactly what I did. But, you know, there's there's a massive amount of risk associated with that. You've got to be prepared to lose everything and, and understand how you're going to deal with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, look, when I, when I bought my first office building, it was 6,000 square feet, a lot, lot smaller. You know, the price point was 575,000. I, uh, I had always been nervous about raising capital. I did a, a 42 unit development deal as my first project. It was townhomes um, where I had a partner in that. So I didn't really have to raise capital. 
but raising capital was just a, a new thing for me that I hadn't done before. And I didn't know really how to do it. But, you know, on the brokerage side, I was representing this group that went under contract on this office building for roughly 600 grand. They went through their due diligence and couldn't get funding. And, you know, I'm a broker, right? So I'm like, well, I got to get that 3% commission. Let, hold on, let me go find another buyer. We assign it to another buyer. He ends up not being able to get his funding put together either. So I just told them, I was like, you know what? Assign me the contract. I'm going to figure this out. Well, that was my fifth year in commercial real estate. I owned zero assets at that time because we'd sold all the townhouses. That same year, I bought three more office buildings because I had finally just gone through the process. I understood how it worked and I knew how to pull off the next one. So we went and did more. And I don't know that I would have done that if I'd just been sitting around and never had an opportunity that was kind of under the gun of, hey, you got to close this. So I could just feel in you the confidence, the self-belief. Obviously, that probably lent itself to why you were able to do what you did. But what was maybe the more technical ways that you were able to get investors, capital, banks to lend you money with not having a ton of experience? For sure. So I had experience on the brokerage side. Um, at this point, this was 2019, 2020 when we went under contract. So I've been working in commercial real estate since October of 2013. So I had about seven years. I had been working on the transaction side for a very long time, um, had gone through a few projects already. So I knew generally how lending worked, how development worked. I mean, because I'd done a, a couple of developments already. Um, and I knew how raising equity worked. I just didn't know how raising $10.8 million worked. Uh, but we figured that out. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, those were the technical skills that were kind of involved in it. It was just sequencing out the deal. And, and really, I mean, if you look at it, that was an elephant. Like, how do we take this down by, 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 right? Okay, first, I got to find my equity partner. And I went and found a group that was big enough that had a massive investor base that had good relationships with lenders, right? So, you know, I still recommend this to everybody. I still do this to this day. Find people that are bigger than you to partner with. It's going to make your life so much easier. Who cares if you have to give them a bigger slice of the pie than you really want to, you're getting the deal done. I would rather have a slice of a water, watermelon than a whole grape, right? It, it's just so much easier to scale that way. And, and the things that you will learn from them and by working on these bigger projects are invaluable as you, as you grow through your career. What was the way, what was your approach to find these people? Like, were you looking them up on Google? How'd you, how'd you track down these high net worth individuals? Oh man, I reached out to every, I mean, so I, in my iPhone, uh, in my contacts, I categorize everybody by investor or developer just over the years. I've always done that so that I, you know, whenever I have a, I had a project as a broker, I could just type in investor and start calling people. And I went through every single person on that list. And I just said, Hey, I need $18 million. Who you got? <laughs> and a bunch of them were just like, I, I don't know, man, like, good luck. That's crazy. Um, I sent out probably over 200 messages on LinkedIn to different private equity firms, family offices, you know, whomever had like real estate capital or real estate, you know, investors in their uh, LinkedIn inbox that were uh, private equity or family office related. And then, you know, ended up calling a friend of a friend who was a developer down in Texas, who then connected me with a mortgage broker that he just met in passing 
um, like two months earlier. And then that mortgage broker had just met another group <laughs> that ended up being my partner. So it was just a, a, a wild um, set of dominoes that fell in place for that to work. But, you know, it's um, I'm, I'm a big believer that the harder you work, the luckier you get. And if I hadn't made the 200 phone calls, the 200 LinkedIn messages that, you know, I'm sure I sent out a hundred emails at least, uh, I would have never found that person. So you essentially partner with somebody who was a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, so to speak. You guys yeah. go in on an $18 million deal. You didn't even know this person existed two weeks before that. Like, is this is common in the commercial industry to get that kind of money from somebody that, that there's not like a prior relationship? I don't know that it's necessarily common, but it's also not uncommon. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, so the way that commercial real estate works, it's very market by market specific, right? So, you know, if you're in Denver, Colorado, you don't have any contacts or relationships in Nashville and, you know, Nashville is a great market to invest in, but you don't have boots on the ground, right? So where we've kind of found our niche now in the years since we closed on this is being the boots on the ground partners for those capital firms, right? So they'll call us and they'll say, hey, we wanna buy something in Nashville. And, and we kind of walk through what a, what a programmatic partnership would look like. And you know, my team has the development experience. We've got the, the government relations contacts, all the vendors that we would ever need. And so we're able to be the boots on the ground, help them put numbers together. They've got all their debt and equity you know, back in Denver or wherever they are, they don't necessarily need to source that in Nashville. So we, it, it's a perfect marriage uh, for those kinds of firms to expand into another market. So it's, it's definitely a speed dating process. And, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours on the phone call with these guys trying to figure out who they were, what they were about. Um, and then, you know, you do as, as well as you can, you get great partnership documents in place to make sure that, you know, if you guys ever disagree on anything, there's a very clear path to making sure the project doesn't just get stalled. Yeah. What is your process to build out those contacts? Let's, let's talk about government contacts in particular. Like, is it just connecting with hiring and partnering with the best architects, the best people that already have longstanding relationships with the city or? Yeah, there's many different ways to do it. So yes, that's one, right? Um, you know, you hire the best architects, the best engineers, because they have been cultivating those relationships for years. And, you know, as you're going through a design process, you're going to meet those representatives. You know, I had joined the chamber, right? And, and there's different chamber events where they would have council members come and speak and they'd have the mayor come and speak. And, you know, then just being in my neighborhood, right? I would reach, reach out to my local council member. Hey, I'm a real estate investor developer in the neighborhood, would like to buy you a drink and just sit down and get to know you. And so I was very intentional about building those relationships. And I can't tell you how, how much that pays, uh, pays you back in spades because, you know, if you know what the council member wants for their district and you are delivering a project that checks those boxes, it makes your life so much easier. There's far too many investors and developers out there that just try and shove a development down the neighborhood's throat and no one likes that. And so if you can find a way to just work within your local, um, you know, culture, neighborhood, whatever you want to call that, uh, it'll make your life so much easier. Take me back to the process, if there was one, that got you comfortable with being bankrupt. This is something that I feel as well. <laughs> and, and so it's like, was that like just something you were born with? Like, heck with it if I go bankrupt? Or was that like a logical process? How'd you get to that point? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I have always been in sales. So when I was 18, went right into a sales job. And I have always been able to just go out and work and make money. You know, I mean, it, it, my time is not valued on an hourly basis. If you were looking at $180,000 on an hourly basis, that's going to, it's unbelievably daunting. But to me, I was like, oh, okay, well, I only have to sell a few real estate buildings for other investors to get, you know, kind of catch back up on that. So I just got to go provide a lot of value. Um, you know, I knew that if I lost that investor's money, he would give me a chance to, to pay it back. And he knew that I would, right? I mean, that's why he was willing to put it up because um, he knew what he was putting at risk when he put the money in there. I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy that will never lose investor capital. Right. So if it means I'm shelling money out of my pocket or I'm paying you back over an X, you know, five year period, whatever that is, I'm going to do it because, um, you know, anything I can do within my power to make sure investors don't lose capital and that, you know, people stay happy and, you know, make money. That's what I'm here for. So, you know, I, I don't know that I was ever concerned about possibly going bankrupt on that deal. Um, it, I, you know, not out of the question. Right. Could have happened. Um, but no, it never really scared me. I mean, dude, I had forty thousand dollars in my bank bank account. Like, oh, boo hoo. <laughs> it's not like I didn't have a house. And, you know, whatever. What are they going to take? Yeah. So. So you wrote a book uh, open for business. And so I want to talk about what did you learn in the process of writing the book? Like, obviously, like, let's talk, we want to talk about the content, too. But, but what was the journey like for you of writing the book? Oh man, it was, it was a, uh, a, I, an eye opening experience for sure. It, you know, when I was, I was 25, when I wrote the book, when I was 24, I had joined a mastermind and, um, uh, a, an author came and spoke and they, they said, you know, raise your hand if you're an author in here. And I think half the room raised their hands. And so I was sitting there kind of thinking to myself, I was like, well, I'm not going to be the one chump that's not an author. Like, I got to go write a book, I guess. And, you know, so I talked to everybody that had raised their hands. I was like, you know, what did you do? How has it impacted your business? And, you know, almost across the board, nobody had made money off their books. They had made money off of what that book positioned them to be. Right. And so, you know, to this day, I think I've probably made less than a thousand dollars off the book, even though it's, you know, an Amazon bestseller, because you make like five dollars a book. I mean, you think about how many books you've got to really sell to make any money. Um, but, you know, it's uh, I got a couple of uh, clients out of California when they moved to Nashville. They called me. They said, hey, read your book. Want to want to work with you. Um, it's helped me get uh, leasing assignments on the brokerage side. Because I'd say, hey, I wrote the book on how to lease commercial real estate. You should work with us. So that part of it was pretty phenomenal. It was a long process. It took us about a year to pull it together. Um, I had a phenomenal editor. So that worked out really well for us. Um, but it was very, very intensive because we were just writing the book. You know, I'm working on my second book right now. And I've broken it up in a completely different way where um, I'm very active on my blog online. So I usually write one to two posts a week. And so that's kind of how I'm writing my second book. It's just going to be all of these blog posts that I've been working on for the last two years. And then we're going to combine that, re-edit it, and that'll become a book. So there's a couple of different ways to do it that uh, just depending on, you know, exactly how you want to approach it. Yeah, I've seen a number of different strategies. There was a guy local to me that helped people write books. And he would sit down for like 11 hours and video interview them. 
and then they would have like 80% yep. of the book in, in one shot. So obviously, even though you haven't really made money on the book in a direct sort of way, the impact of the book was positive enough that you're writing the second one. So my first question is, down. how did you determine how you wanted to position yourself in each of these books? Yeah, so it's it's funny. I mean, going back, uh, I, I probably would never have written a book about leasing commercial real estate. Um, not that it was a bad thing, but you know, when I was 24, 25, I was doing a lot of leases, right? So I was working a lot with small businesses that were, you know, just needing space, and it worked out. You know, I, I that's just what I knew best. The problem is now, like we get a bunch of clients off of that. And, you know, these are $200,000 leases, which isn't bad when you're 24, but, you know, now we're working on nine, 10, $12 million transactions and, and, and bigger than that in some cases. And so it's tough for us to focus on. So that's why I'm writing my second book. It's like, okay, let's talk about investing in commercial real estate and get more of those clients. Um, because it's just uh, a, you know, now that's our new target demographic that we want to go after. Now, you seem to me like the guy, obviously, you're a get-it-done kind of guy. The puck's moving fast because you're constantly leveling up. By the time you write this book, do you think you're going to be on to a level three of Tyler Cobble? Yeah, we, we definitely could be. I mean, that's that's a good thing, right? Like, I don't ever want to just, you know, write a book and then it's stagnant for the rest of my life. Like, I hope that I outgrow that because that, that'd be a phenomenal thing to have. You know, I'm building a team around me that's really helping, uh, you know, on the brokerage front, the property management front, the development side. So eventually where I'd like to get is, you know, I'm just strictly business development. I don't handle any of the leasing. I don't, which, I mean, today I don't really handle any leasing or sales now, which is great. I've got a couple of awesome brokers on the team, um, but I'm not handling any of the day-to-day -day project management on the development side. I don't have to step in to help with property management so that I can go focus on that. So they'll end up becoming really good lead generators for the rest of the team. And they're not going to take up a whole, a whole bunch of my, my headspace. Yeah. And what led you into real estate in the first place? That's a great question, man. So like I said, I, I was in sales right when I turned 18, um, sold Cutco knives and uh, made, I mean, I was one of the top sales reps in the Eastern region. And um, I was actually number one that summer, I think, and made 30 grand. And so I, I went to a nice private high school. I was very fortunate in that respect, had a fine education. Then I went to the University of Tennessee at Knoxville and was completely unimpressed with the university, with the city. I could not stand Knoxville compared to Nashville. It made me really appreciate Nashville so much more. And uh, I was sitting in class one day and, you know, learning about pyroclastic flow and geology, which like, come on, man, I know I'm never going to have to use this. I learned about this in eighth grade. And I, you know, it was, uh, my head was just wandering off and, and I started thinking to myself, okay, I made 30 grand in three months. That's $120,000 a year. If I was doing sales full time, what the hell am I doing in college? So I dropped out um, after that semester and uh, moved back and started working as a project manager in construction for my grandfather's company and originally thought I was just going to grow and, and take over that firm and, and grow it even bigger. Uh, but about three months into it, a developer that I had sold cut code knives to heard that I was back in town and he just was impressed with my sales skills and, and had asked me if I'd come be their in-house leasing agent. And so that's kind of how I got started in commercial real estate. It was very much by accident. So let's talk about your sales skills. Cause this is something I'm crazy, crazy passionate about. So were you born with these set of skills? Like what was your process to develop, develop those skills? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there was there's always some part of you that was inherently um, a strength towards sales, right? You know, I, I was always an outgoing kid, um, by far not the most outgoing, but I, you know, I was president of my freshman class. I had no problem speaking in front of my, my classmates. I was president of the service club in high school. Um, you know, I just, I never had issues talking to people. You know, I, I think my parents just raised me right, you know, saying yes, ma'am, no, sir. And, uh, and looking people in the eye and shaking their hand. And, you know, when I went to, to Cutco, that really honed my sales skills and they taught me how to sell, what that whole process is. And, you know, very quickly into that, I changed up kind of how the whole process went. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to sit down and lean into asking these people questions and listening, right? Because if you can listen, you know, it's kind of like what I was saying earlier about meeting your council members. If you can listen and figure out what they actually need, it's not a sale, you're not selling somebody something, right? I mean, that's what people get, like, you know, that's the feeling people get when they're talking about, like, car salesmen. Like, they're just so pushy. They're doing this, that, and the other. But if that car salesman sat there and listened to you, and they're like, you know what? It really sounds like this car is going to be a fit because of what you said about taking your kids to soccer practice, but also needing something that's practical for you getting to and from work. You know, that's a totally different process. And so I just really honed those skills over hundreds of appointments at Cutco, Um and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's worked out really well for me. Oh, so incredible. So take us, you got the sales skills, you get into the leasing. There's still like a big world ahead of you. I mean, was your mentor, like, did he make it really easy for you to grow or, or did you have to like really push the ball forward yourself? No, he made it, uh, he actually probably did the exact opposite. I think that he realized after he brought me on, uh, what I was going to be capable of. And I think he got a little jealous of that. So he ended up, so yeah, it, it had caused a huge rift between us. And he was, he was, uh, we were partnered on a deal. He ended up stealing a whole bunch of money from me on that deal. And uh, I ended up leaving. Um, so not a, not a very good uh, ending there, but he, he really tried to keep me out of a lot of the parts of the process, um, which I didn't really realize until later. And unfortunately that's fairly common in commercial real estate. You know, people don't want everybody else to learn 100% of how the deal gets done because then you can't work for them, right? Then you then they have to partner with you or then, you know, you're going to go do your own thing. And so, you know, I, I mean, no, he didn't, he didn't help me out at all. Um, it was basically like a, hey, um, you know, go find a tenant that wants to lease space and then we'll show you how to do the deal. Like, okay, fine. So I just went and started knocking on doors. Best thing I could have done, though, because, uh, you know, even back in 2013, there weren't a lot of books, but I read every book that there was. There were two podcasts, and one of them had stopped recording about two years earlier. Um, there were definitely no YouTube videos on commercial real estate, so I just went and started having coffee with everybody that would sit down with me uh, to learn everything that I possibly could. Yeah. So you start getting some traction. Like, where was the point where you felt comfortable, like, breaking out on your own? Yeah, so it was literally a week after I launched my book, I left. So it was February of 2018. I've been doing it for, I've been with him for about four and a half years. Um, you know, I, I was just kind of thinking, like, he didn't, the, he didn't show up to the book launch, um, which kind of got me thinking. And, you know, it had been something I've been working on for a year, and it meant a lot to me. And, um, you know, it, uh, it just really made me think, like, okay, I'm in an environment where I'm not supported. I need to be going and doing my own thing. Uh, because I'm paying him a lot of money through commissions to be here 
they're taking a healthy split. Uh, I'm being restricted on the things that I can work on. So let's go out and do it. So I left. And that year, when I started my firm, I tripled the amount of business that we did. And to me, it was just such a testament to how much I was really being held back in that environment. So now that you're doing so many amazing projects, big deals, building companies and teams, how do you structure your goals and what you want the future to look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I first got started, uh, I would set all of those monetary goals. Like, oh, I want to I wanna get to, you know, $100,000 a year. And then it was, oh, I want to get to a million dollars in net worth. And once I hit those numbers, I realized they were just useless vanity metrics. So now I, I don't even use numbers in my goals at all because I just don't feel like I don't feel rewarded every time I hit them. I just feel empty. Like, okay, cool. We got that. Like what's next. So now it's more of, you know, uh, how are we giving back to the community? How are we supporting small businesses? It's more of a, um, I don't know. It's not monetary. It's more of along the lines of like, what's going to get us out of bed every day. Like what's going to be super cool that we can work on that. Everybody's going to love. Let's go do that. So that's, that's kind of the approach that we take now. What do you think is going to get you out of bed for the next 12 to 18 months? Oh man. Next 12 to 18 months. That's a good question. The hotels that I'm, I've got two hotels that we're working on. Those are super exciting. Um, I just met with my team today. We own the office building that I'm in right now. It's a small building right next to a car wash that we renovated into a project called the wash, uh, which is five micro restaurants and a bar in the original car wash base. And they pitched me on um, adding about 1,800 square feet onto this building and doing a cafe bar, uh, like European style, which was awesome. So, you know, I, I love doing those kinds of projects because they're just very different. Um, they give back to the community. It's, it's adding to the, to the culture of the neighborhood um, and to the fabric that's already here. And I think that's just so important for us as real estate investors and developers to keep in mind as we're going through this process because – you know, whether you know it or not, or think about it, every single building has an impact on everybody's daily lives. Again, it may be subconscious, but like if you drive past a building that's just kind of run down or it becomes another vape shop or whatever, it detracts from the overall feel of that neighborhood. And, you know, it's, it's like the built environment does have a huge impact on people and, and how, how neighbor, neighborhoods thrive. So, yeah, we've got the two hotels. We've got that project that we're working on now. Um, I just bought one and a half million square feet out in Chattanooga, uh, a former wool mill that we are going to convert into a mixed-use town center. So we've got some we've got some fun things on the horizon. That's incredible, Tyler Cobble. Thank you so much for sharing about your life and your business, about sales and, and venturing out. I think there's so much value for people listening, guys. If if you took something away, whether it's how to take the next step, how to step out in fear, how to be comfortable with maybe the idea that you know, bankruptcy risk isn't as big of a deal because you can keep swinging for home runs. Whatever you took away, write it down. Share it with somebody who knows they can hold you accountable. And as you take steps day by day before you know it, you'll be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.